Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Layla Schultz-Ames. Today we're going to talk about mass shootings, school shootings, and the Great Replacement Theory. Stay tuned. First, before we start out, I hope everyone had a great Juneteenth this past weekend. If you don't remember what it is, feel free to go back to my past episode from last year and learn a little bit more about it. Really important historical event, and it's really nice to see a lot of people celebrating it, both in the United States and also here in Spain. We had a really nice event, so feel free to to check out my, my past episodes on that. Okay, so for today's topic, I said in the introduction I wanted to talk a little bit about shootings and the Great Replacement Theory. And I chose this topic because we are just a few weeks removed from two mass shootings, one in Buffalo and one in Evaldi, Texas. And I know at this point everyone has seen the news and read what happened, but just to recap a little bit. Last month, a gunman, and I'm, I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to bring attention to the shooter. I'd rather bring attention to the victims and not the people that are committing these heinous crimes. But a gunman drove 200 miles from his hometown in Conklin, New York, to Buffalo after searching out and specifically targeting a predominantly black neighborhood. He shot 11 black people and two white people at the grocery store. This is according to the local authorities. 10 people died, all of them were were black. Now, a 180-page document, which was written by the shooter, basically gives plans for the attack, and he makes references to other racist shootings, and he outlines a lot of racist ideology rooted in this belief that the U.S. should belong only to white people. All others, according to this, this document, are replacers who should be eliminated by force or terror. And really, the attack was intended to intimidate all non-white, non-Christian people and to get them to leave the country. Again, this is according to the document. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that and the Great Replacement Theory a bit later on in this episode. But as as abhorrent as the shooting was, it was hardly an isolated incident. The history of the U.S. is filled with white supremacist violence, starting from even before its official origins. And... You know, black people have borne and continued to bear the brunt of a lot of this. And obviously other groups have been targeted in attacks because of their race, uh, specifically Latinos in the 2019 shooting at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. 22 people were killed. And uh, of course, as I mentioned at the, the top of this episode, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. So again, just to recap that, uh, I'm sure most people have read and and heard a a lot about it on the news, but uh, just recently on May 24th of this year, an 18-year-old gunman fatally shot 19 students and two teachers and wounded 17 other people at Robb Elementary School in Nivaldi. And uh, early in the day, he actually shot his grandmother in the forehead. And um, then outside the school, he fired shots for, they say, about five or six minutes before taking his AR-15 rifle and um, unlocking the side door entrance and uh, going in where he locked himself into into a couple of classrooms and, and ended up killing students and, and two teachers. So obviously one of the big parts of the, the story is that it took an hour before uh, members of the U.S. Border Patrol tactic unit actually were able to, to break in and fatally 
shoot him. Um, and this, this marks what they say is the third deadliest school shooting in the U.S., uh, it's, uh, according to CNN, and they said uh, that's behind Virginia, Virginia Tech in 2007, and of course the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012. So shootings, of course, they affect everyone, uh, but recently we have seen people of color are being targeted, and we also know that shooters tend to be white people. Uh, It's also interesting because even though this is the case, I think there's still often a portrayal of sort of like people of color being violent and and committing a lot of crimes and murders, even though statistics don't really back this up. I mean, if you think about most mass shootings in the last decade or even two decades, they're majority young white men. Uh, Black men of color do not typically represent the majority of mass shooters or mass murderers. Uh, recent studies reveal that most school shooters are are white males, about 97% being male and 79% being white. And the past few decades, 90% of all mass shooters were the result of white, often upper middle class male perpetrators. And that's uh, according to, to data presented by Zatista, between 1982 and tw- 2006, 48 out of 83 mass shootings were initiated by white shooters in the U.S. And, you know, research continues to, to say that African Americans, you know, they commit close to 16% of mass shootings, and Asians are responsible for about 9%, uh, and the rest would be Latino and, and Native American and so on. So I, I find it interesting then that, that Blacks and Hispanics are disproportionately portrayed as criminal suspects in a lot of news stories, uh, more specifically Blacks. Uh, they're nearly two and a half times, uh, and, and Hispanics are, are also up there as well, two and a half times more likely to be presented in roles as, as criminal suspects than whites. Um, so we sort of, again, we see in, in, in the media and in TV and movies and all of that as sort of this, you know, black and, and, and brown people, particularly men being really violent and, and shooting everything up and being thugs and all of that. But uh, the reality is that, uh, again, most of these these mass shooters are, are white people, white men. And um, it's interesting, though, like the media will will sort of cover it where, you know, the white, a lot of time white suspects are sort of described as lone wolf you know, violent acts, and it was one angry white person, and they were bullied or something. Whereas, you know, a lot of times you see black people, you know, even if they're not the shooters, if they're just the victims, there's sort of an excuse as to why they were killed, you know, like, for example, Trayvon Martin, he was wearing a hoodie, right? And that behavior was framed in stories as being like, oh, well, of course, he looked like a thug. He looked like he was about to break something. And, you know, he was going to steal something from a store, right? We kind of put it on the victim. And we saw that too with Michael Brown, right? Um, And it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, Brown, he stole cigars from a convenience store. Of course, he shouldn't have been doing that. He brought this on himself. You know, in other words, in terms of, of black victims, the media oftentimes frames the event as somehow a way to justify their deaths. And I, you know, I, I don't want it to be a race thing. I really don't because it isn't. It's not a race thing. And essentially, it's an American thing, right? So as an American, 
I want to talk about this. And also as a, as a black American, I, I, I do have to, to speak up and say what I think to be the truth, right? I have to say my perspective on all of this. Uh, and as, as somebody who obviously grew up in America, lived a lot of my life in America and now lives overseas. So I, I, I do follow a lot of what the news says. And I know there's this big debate about gun reform versus mental health, right? And a lot of, of these articles and news stories, they say, oh, these shooters were depressed or they were bipolar or they couldn't afford their medication, right? But mental health advocates have frequently expressed their concern that the news media's focus on mass shootings and mental illness could lead consumers to view mental illness as a cause of tragic shootings. And this isn't necessarily the right way to go, right? Because social, a lot of social psychology research also suggests that news stories that describe mass shootings events by uh, oh, this person is mentally ill, that's sort of giving off the wrong wrong idea, right? Because a lot of times mentally ill people are actually victims of these uh, violent acts, whether it's mass shootings or just in a domestic situation, um, are, they're, they're killed. So it's not really fair to say, oh, well, you know, meant that somebody's mentally ill and they might commit a mass shooting or, or to even just sort of wash it over is like, oh, the reason we have all these shootings in America is because we have a, a big mental ill stance. Uh, my, my personal opinion, and obviously this is my podcast, so I get to give my own opinion here. Uh, my, my stance is that it's not a mental health issue. It's a domestic terrorism issue. And it's one that can only be solved with better gun laws. And I know people say, oh, well, laws won't stop bad people from doing bad things. But let's be real. It's worth a try, right? We have Look, we have driver's licenses, right? You you can't just get a car and not have any training or not have a license. You have to be a certain age. You have to practice. Heck, you can get your license taken away if you don't follow certain laws. So what's wrong with having tighter laws? What's wrong with making it hard for people to get guns? And it's not about taking the guns away from people as, as a lot of Republicans. I'm just going to say Republicans. I'm sorry to my Republican friends that are listening, but... Let's just be honest, it's it's not about that. You know, this the Second Amendment rights, you know, everybody talks about the Second Amendment. And I, I'm a history teacher and I, I teach the Second Amendment. And I think it's important for people to understand the Second Amendment does not say that every Tom, Dick and Harry can have an AR-15. It actually says a well-regulated militia. And back when the Second Amendment was written, a gun would fire one bullet in 60 seconds, Right. Now you have guns that fire nine bullets per second. So picture that. It's not even the same instrument that the founding fathers were dealing with. And, you know, it would benefit everyone, black, white, brown, to actually do something about it. And, you know, people don't want to make make these changes. But I will say, again, looking back in history, if you look at California, if you look at California during the time that Ronald Reagan was governor, they had the tightest gun laws in the country. And you wonder, well, why Reagan was a Republican? Well, 
it's because the the Black Panthers used to arm themselves and they would go around their neighborhoods, particularly the Bay Area and in Oakland, and they would walk around with guns. And so (laughs) Republicans saw that and lawmakers saw that and they didn't want people of color to have guns. So they put forth really strict laws. So it it can be done. It can definitely be done. And, And I have a lot of feelings about this. And obviously as, as a person of color, as a teacher too, you know, it's really crazy to see what's happening again and again and again, and, and nothing gets done. And people talk about wanting to arm teachers, but they won't even trust us to pick up the right books for our classes. So I, I don't know how that's going to work, really. If if uh, anybody wants to explain that to me, I'm, I'm open to hearing. And in a lot of states, you can't say gay in schools because that's going to harm the kids, right? But doing active shooting drills in school doesn't harm them. Another thing I need explaining. So again, please, please send me a message or or call me if someone has the answer to that. So on top of all of this, uh, I think it's a disservice to put it on mental health and say, well, the only reason we have shooting is mental health. That's about as useful as the thoughts and prayers from Republican congressmen who are funded by the NRA. And I mean, of course, mental health is a big issue. I'm not trying to make light of the fact that in America, there there is a lot of, of problems with the mental health system and there's a lack of, of funding and resources. But it's not to say that there's not other mental health issues in other countries. I mean, in Switzerland, they have mental health and they have guns and they don't have shooting. In France, there's mental health issues. And in Spain here, people have issues so every other country that I know of, there's people with mental health issues, but I don't know other countries that have shootings like America. And honestly, it's not fair to people with mental health issues to just say that. I, I mean, a lot of people have mental health issues. I've had my own struggles with mental health issues. I, I, I've talked a little bit about it on, on this podcast, but not once in my life have I thought about buying a gun and shooting up a grocery store or a school, or a church. So again, people with mental health problems are more likely to be victims of of mass shootings than to actually commit shootings. So I apologize for going on a rant, but I say all of this to say that as a nation, we can do better, we should do better, and we need to act now before it's too late. Okay, so at the beginning of the episode, I was talking about the Great Replacement Theory, and I wanted to come back to that uh, because I know I got a little off-tangent talking about guns. So, okay, so what is it, and how does the Great Replacement Theory relate to mass shootings? So, as I said in Buffalo, the shooter had this 180-page memo, and it repeated key elements of replacement theory. So this is a conspiracy theory with roots in French nationalism of the 20th, 20th century that falsely warns that Western elite, elites and Jews are bringing immigrants into a country to replace white people. So since the shootings, several Republican politicians and commentators, yet Tucker Carlson, I'm, I'm looking at you, have used language that echoes this idea. So for example, and it's not just Tucker Carlson, but uh, Mississippi, Missouri State Senator uh, Eric Schmidt, he said uh, in May that 
Democrats are, quote, fundamentally trying to change this country through illegal immigration, end quote. We also had the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick from Texas said uh, when he was speaking about the Haitian uh, migrants arriving at the border, he said, quote, this is trying to take over our country without firing a shot, end quote. So as scholars of white supremacy and white nationalism and extremism, I think it's really important for all of us, well, whether we're scholars or not, I think it's important for all of us to understand what replacement theory means and how it shapes various white supremacist conspiracies, which often motivate a lot of these violent crimes that we're, we're seeing in, in the U.S., So research shows that this theory has been gaining traction in the U.S. the past couple of decades. And it's definitely unfortunate. I mean, those who believe in replacement theory think that there is this organized conspiracy effort across all levels of society to establish this great replacement of white people, white civilization, white culture, white everything. And... Obviously, for those of us who think this is a false idea, this threat poses this existential danger to, you know, how how our society is as a whole. Because especially in America, we are built on, you know, culture. We're built on people from different countries and different backgrounds. And right now, four out of ten Americans identify as non-white and, and the numbers of of people that are immigrants or, or people from other backgrounds continues, you know, to, to increase according to the U.S. Census projections. So this ultimately means that there would be less influence and less power over time for white people, right? If we're starting to see a decline in, in the numbers of people that identify as white. So replacement theory believers think that they must correct this declining influence of white voters and white identity through whatever means they can. And one key element of replacement theory is targeting immigrants and that belief that immigrants are part of a plot to replace the political power and the culture of white people living in Western countries. But, you know, the theory is it's not just about immigrants. Uh, like a lot of this white supremacist uh, ideology, replacement theory also extends to Jews, black people, really anybody that is not 100% white. And in order, according to an article I read in the online magazine, The Conversation, uh, replacement theory is something that um, dates back to, as it, well, I mentioned that the French, there's a French um, writing uh, about it, but it also dates back to something in Russia as well. This idea of a Jewish conspiracy to dominate the world was actually written in this anti-Semitic document, The Protocols of Elders of Zion. It was published in 1903 in Russia. And then it, it also gained a lot of attention during World War II as well with the Nazis. And uh, in the 1960s and 70s, obviously there are many white supremacists uh, like the KKK, KKK leaders, uh, really brought a lot of these theories about Jews and black people to the forefront. And we started seeing this this replacement theory get a lot of attention in, in the U.S. So it's sort of continued nowadays too, with especially with the internet. That's become a really big forum for recruiting white supremacists. 
and just getting people kind of connected all together. So I did see that last month, according to a May 2022 Associated Press poll, it found that about one in three adults in the U.S. actually believe there's an effort underway to replace U.S.-born Americans with immigrants for electoral gains. And it's it's kind of crazy to say that, you know, one in three people is, is a lot, especially since America has, you know, 300 million people. So it's a lot of people. But we have seen this in shootings in the last few years, right? We in, in 2017, uh, hundreds of individuals representing anti-Semitic and white supremacist groups, including of course the KKK, they gathered for the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. That was a two-day event that sparked a lot of violence. Uh, the ex- well, we know that there, there's a lot of chanting going on. Um, there was a lot of like re- group replacement theory and you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. So that was a big, big thing. The next year in October of 2018, 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue were killed uh, in one of the, the deadliest attacks against the Jewish community in the U.S., and the shooter was said to also subscribe to a lot of those replacement theories. Um, he, he basically believed that Jews were providing aid and assistance to refugees, and he was working to, to basically stop that and, you know, stop these people from invading, invading our country. Uh, even in, you know, outside of the U.S., in March of, of 2019, there were 51 people killed in a terrorist attack in a mosque in in Christchurch, New Zealand. And the shooter's manifesto was was talking a lot about this idea of um, what was called the Great Replacement, and he talked a lot about that. And then in that same year, in August, we had, of course, El Paso. 23 people were killed in a Walmart there. And the targets were, again, Latino shoppers, and they, it was this idea of the fear of Hispanic, a Hispanic invasion of Texas. So obviously there is a, a lot of fear that's going on. And, you know, I, it is obviously true that the reality is in the next few decades, white Americans will be in the minority. That is going to happen. Whether or not people want it to happen, that is where we are headed at this point. But that begs the question, what's wrong with that? I mean, why are so many white people scared of being the minority? Are minorities treated unfairly in America or something? I don't know. I'm just I'm just wondering because it seems that there's a lot of uh, fear. Um, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, a lot of these these theories don't really hold water because... Uh, this this whole like democratic replacement plot, right? This idea of like, oh, the Democrats are trying to get immigrants in here so they can vote, you know, left and all that. It doesn't make sense because if you look at it, Republicans since the 1970s have done really, really well with Latino voters. And it actually would benefit them to have more Latino immigrants because even though by and large black people tend to vote, Democratic, Latinos tend to vote Republican. Again, I'm generalizing, but it it seems like it would actually make more sense for them. So, okay. Uh, So kind of like to look at it, though, how can we actually combat this rise of this this great replacement theory? Um, Obviously, it can feel really overwhelming and it can feel like nothing is going to make a difference. But 
we have the power to educate ourselves and others and be the catalyst for change in our own communities. So where can we start? Well, the National Immigration Forum actually had a few really good ideas. Um, So just to to talk a little bit about a few of them. One is to learn more about history. I mean, just read through resources, internet, libraries, um, just learn a lot about this extremism in the U.S. and and learn about, you know, efforts to to combat it, Um, help others understand as well. So you know, sharing resources, talking to your loved ones and friends. I know it can be kind of hard sometimes to be like, hey, friends, like, I want to talk about racism today. But, you know, speaking up, sharing speeches, quotes, articles, uh, etc., it can be really good. Um, number two is ask questions. When you're, you know, in a situation where you can reach out to your public officials or even community members, uh, ask them questions about what they plan on doing, what are their thoughts, you know, we, especially on a local level, you know, you can make a difference by electing people that actually are, you know, fighting for social justice. So that's a big thing. Uh, And three, you know, get involved in your community. So support immigrants, refugees, migrants, uh, it's really important for them to feel like they have support uh, in a a society where a lot of people are, are very, you know, reluctant, I I guess you could say about uh, people coming into America. So yeah, just supporting them and helping them to resettle in, you know, in your community, in your country, I think that can be really good. And if you're looking for ways to take action on national scale, definitely check out, again, the National Immigration Forum's advocacy resources page to, to learn more. All right, I want to end this episode with a quote from my forever first lady, the wonderful Michelle Obama, who said, quote, history has shown us that courage can be contagious and hope can take on a life of its own, end quote. Let's hope that's true and that we can continue to fight against injustices. So as always, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.